We're going to be looking at a passage that is very easy to skip. And um, if you were to skip this as you were reading through the Bible, if you, if you decided uh, what I really want to do is just read through the entire, uh, there we go, um, what I really want to do is just read through the entire uh, book of Kings as, as you would a novel, which I definitely recommend. You should do that at some point in your life. It's a worthwhile thing to do. Um, you would skip this over because this is a passage that we're going to look at today in 1 Kings chapter 5. It's just about acquiring lumber for the temple. And it doesn't sound like it's that exciting a part of the story. And in all honesty, if you were to tell the story of building your own house, you wouldn't spend too much time describing how you drove to Home Depot and got a load of lumber. Like, you just wouldn't think about that. You wouldn't, you know, and you, or, or if somebody dropped it off, that wouldn't be a big part of the story. You got lumber. And unless, unless you are a, 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 a deep biblical nerd like I am, or you are uh, very invested in the, in, the, in the lumber and forestry industries, you might, uh, there might be, there might be nothing that would interest you in this passage. And this is a passage about the mundane details of the negotiation of Solomon with an outside country in order to acquire lumber for the building of the temple. It's about mundane details. But I'm going to suggest to you that that's, that that's a very good reason for us to look at this passage. Because if we're honest, most of our lives are spent on mundane details. There are mountaintop moments in our lives and things that are very exciting and, and times when we tell these wonderful stories of what's going on in our lives. But most of our lives are spent in the mundane details of acquiring lumber or negotiating contracts or, or, or cooking and making food and figuring out how, who is going to clean the bathroom and how are these things going to be done. Most of our lives are spent on those mundane details. So... If God has nothing to say about those mundane details, then he has nothing to say about most of our lives. But we do believe that God has lots to say about those mundane details. And, and, a lot of, and what's interesting is that those mundane details become places where we as Christians get stuck. Because these mundane details are really negotiations of how we get what we want and what we need in a world that is fallen and confusing and complex and not necessarily a place where everyone believes as we do. You know, and I just thought of the, 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 the myriad of news stories that I read this week that are really kind of about mundane details, but that I've seen people of God get bogged down on. Should we be upset that the governor general seems to think that, that people who believe in a divine intervention and in creation are kind of silly. Should, is that a thing that I should care about? Is, is that a thing that I should spend one iota of time thinking about? Should we participate in Halloween? Is it okay to have your kids dress up in a costume and, and participate in this ritual that we do in our culture? Is, that, is it okay for, for you to give out candy on Halloween. It, like, and, and some of you are laughing as if like that's not really a question, but for some people of God, that is a very deep and important question that they ask. How, as parents, we see Christian parents dealing all the time with the question of like, what schools ought we to send our kids to? And how much should we expect those schools to reinforce the faith that we're trying to teach our children? What are our expectations of these places? Those are important details. And, and in some ways, that's a negotiation with a world that is not what we expect it to be. Should we, who should we do business with? Should, and this is a little bit of an older story, but, but still an important one, should a baker 
who professes to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus have to make a, 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 a wedding cake for a same-sex wedding? So it's a mundane, detailed question. It's who are you going to do business or not do business with? But, but, it, but, but, but that's where we get stuck, and that's where we get bogged down, and that's what we spend a lot of time thinking about. And if we believe that the Bible has nothing to say about those moments, then, then, we ought to, the, the, then we're left in the dark. But I do believe that the Bible has lots to say about those mundane moments if we're willing to, to work at it. So here we go. And we're going to go into, uh, into 1 Kings chapter 5, and, and we're going to meet Hiram, king of Tyre. So when Hiram, king of Tyre, heard that Solomon had been anointed king to succeed his father David, he sent his envoys to Solomon because he had always been on friendly terms with David. And Solomon sent a message back to him. So this starts with a friendly relationship. Now Tyre was not part of the kingdom of Israel. It was territory that was included in the allotment to Asher when the, when the Israelites took the promised land. But it was not part of the kingdom of Israel. These were not Israelites. They were, they were Phoenicians or Greeks, as they would have been known. Uh, Greeks to us, Phoenicians at the time. And Tyre is a city that still exists. It's part of Lebanon. So Tyre and a, and a city to the north called Sidon, those were, were, were both uh, non-Israelite cities that existed at the time. They were mostly focused on fishing and, and shipping and, and those sorts of industries. And, and what we find out very early on, this is the first time that they're mentioned, that there was friendly relations between Hiram of Tyre and David. Um, the, these, yeah, and these cities still exist today. So Sidon is now known as Sida in Lebanon, uh, which is just the Arabic word for fishing. For fishing, and and these two cities are often mentioned together. Tyre seems to be a smaller city that is uh, secondary to to Sidon, um, but we, what we know is that uh, it was a fortified city. city. Uh, it, it, it was very, uh, very strong and influential because they had a, a, a very powerful navy, and they were also well fortified to the land side. So by the time, so when Nebuchadnezzar tried to take over uh, Tyre, he couldn't. He couldn't. Uh, he didn't have the navy. He didn't have the. He didn't have the military to take them by land. He didn't have the navy to take them by sea. Uh, Alexander the Great rolled over them because he had the navy to take them by sea. Um, and. What we do know about Tyre is that uh, it was a center of forestry and, 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 uh, and sawmills and lumbering. Uh, in Lebanon, was known for its cedars, okay? So if you wanted to build something nice, you would build it out of cedar. Where would you get cedar? You would get the cedar from Tyre and Sidon, okay? And they had provided cedar for David's palace in Jerusalem. So Solomon... In his wisdom, remember he's been given wisdom by the Lord, he responds to Hiram in this way. You know that because of the wards waged against my father David from all sides, that he could not build a temple for the name of the Lord his God until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is no adversary or disaster, and I intend, therefore, to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord told my father David when he said, your son whom I will put on your throne in your place will build the temple for my name. Okay, so we understand what he's asking for. He's building the temple. The temple is going to be the most holy place in, in all of Israel. The temple is going to be pl the place where God himself will rest. It is the most holy place that they could consider. And in the midst, so he says this, so give orders that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me. 
My men will work with yours, and I will pay you for your men whatever wages you set. You know that we have no one so skilled in felling timber as the Sidonians. Now, this is interesting because we are talking about the temple. This is the house of the Lord. This is the, the, the this is and and having a a physical temple as opposed to a movable tent and tabernacle is going to be incredibly symbolic for the people of Israel that they are no longer a nomadic nation but now that they are are rested and in the promised land. So this is the most holy site for Israel and to build the holy site for Israel Solomon goes to get lumber from another country. Okay? That's an interesting thing that happens. A, a, a country where they do not follow the Lord, trees that are grown in not the promised land, felled by people who do not follow Torah, will build the house of the Lord. Now this is interesting because Solomon does not say we are going to build this temple with good, strong Israelite cedar. Why doesn't he say that? Because there is no good, strong Israelite cedar. The land doesn't work to grow cedars in that way. They didn't have forests in the same way. They didn't have trees like that. They didn't have the expertise to bring them down. And I think it's fascinating that Solomon was willing and able and believed it ethical to use the resources and talents of the, those who do not yet know the Lord for the purposes of the Lord. This is a fascinating thing to me. Solomon found it ethical and useful to use the resources and talents of those who don't know the Lord for the purposes of the Lord. We have no evidence that the people of, of Tyre were followers uh, 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 of Torah. We, we believe that they knew Yahweh as one of the gods, and, and we're going to see that evidence in a little bit, but we have zero evidence that they actually were, were, were followers of the Lord in the same way that the Israelites were. And they certainly were not ethnically Israelites in any way, shape, or form, and yet Solomon found it good and useful to, to, to use their talents and their products to build the house of the Lord. He even flatters them a little because he says, we have no one who's as good as felling, at felling trees as the Sidonians, right? This is a fascinating thing for me. And, and so this continues. When Hiram heard Solomon's message, he was greatly pleased and said, Praise be to the Lord today, for he has given David a wise son to rule over this great nation. Now, is this a clue that Hiram is a follower of the Lord? It could be. But I think it's much more likely, given the context, that, that he believes that Yahweh is the God of Israel, and kudos to that God. It's not the God here, but good for, good for the God of Israel. And we see this, that Hiram sends word to Solomon, I have received the message you sent me, and I will do all you want in providing the cedar and juniper logs. My men will haul them down from Lebanon to the Mediterranean Sea. I will float them as rafts by sea to the place that you specify, which incidentally is still the same way that we transport logs today. There, I will separate them and you can take them away. And you were to grant my wish by providing food for my royal household. And this is interesting. So this starts a trend that continues throughout the reign of Solomon, that rulers from the surrounding area, uh, Hiram of Tyre, Tyre, we'll see later the Queen of Sheba um, from Egypt, other nations, that due to the conduct and the outcomes of Solomon and the people of Israel, the people of the surrounding nations honor the Lord. So they look at him and they say, things are going well for you. We're gonna, uh, I don't know about this, this God that you worship, but things seem to be working out okay. You guys seem to be doing well. Maybe there's something to this God that you've got, the, the, this God that you worship, because things seem to be going well for you. And this is interesting. 
because Solomon's behavior caused those who were far from the Lord, in this case geographically and ethnically and everything that made them separate and unclean, but Solomon's behavior causes those who are far from the Lord to honor the Lord. That's an important thing, and we shouldn't be surprised by that because that's echoed again in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 2, right? Where, and, and many of you are familiar with this, where, where Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Give, live such good lives among the pagans. Now, pagan has a negative connotation in our culture. It did not have the same uh, negative connotation in, uh, in, uh, for the, the writers of the, of, the, of the early scripture in Koine Greek. Pagan simply meant person who lived in the country, okay? So live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So even for Peter, there's this expectation that, a, that, that, that people who are far from the Lord are going to come to honor the Lord by the behavior of the, people who, uh, of the people who follow the Lord. Even if they don't know him yet, they are going to begin to honor him, that they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. And this is incredibly important for us. Because this makes it quite clear, and it should make it quite clear for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that Christianity and, and the faith of God as understood throughout Scripture is not a religion of withdrawal, okay? There are some who believe that Christianity is a religion of withdrawal, and as soon as I begin to follow Jesus, I need to escape this world into a world that is more comfortable and simpler. So we're going to gather in, 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 in Christian churches, in Christian schools, in Christian subculture, and surround ourselves with only Christian, and we're going to escape into this world because that world's bad. Every once in a while, we'll go out, uh, we'll go out with a bunch of tracks, and we'll try and grab some people from out here, and yank them, drag them into our in, into our little cultural sub uh, subcultural bubble. But that's the goal: is to is to provide escape from the world at large into this world. And that's not Christianity at all. The expectation of Christianity is that we're going to live in the world in which God has planted us, with all of its mixed upness, with all of its awkwardness, with all of its people who do not yet know the Lord. And we're going to live so well here that people will notice that there is something different about us. Christianity is not a religion of withdrawal. It is a religion of engagement. And that is a huge shift that we need to make in our minds because so many of these things in the mundane details that get us caught up and get us confused and make us feel like, like we have no idea how to operate in this world, is because we've forgotten that at its core, the religion of the people of God, the, and I use religion in the technical sense, which means the work of the people, the religion of Christianity intends for us to engage with the world around us, not to withdraw from it. We can't live such good lives among the pagans unless we are among the pagans. So if this is true, if we take this seriously, then we ought to reevaluate a whole bunch of things about Christian subculture that we have just ignored for a long time. If we take this seriously, should the Christian hockey league, rec hockey league exist? Should church league softball exist if we take this seriously? Should the shepherd's guide, giving us a list of only Christian businesses to work with, exist if we take this seriously? I'm not going to give you an answer for that. I'm pretty sure you can guess where I'm leaning. But these are the things that you ought to engage with, right? 
This idea that we're going to separate from the world and pull ourselves into this, this, the, 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 this safe little culture that's safe and fun for the whole, whole family, separate from the world around us, is, is a directly contrary to the life to which God has called us. So Hiram sent word to Solomon, I have received the message you sent me and will do all you want to providing the cedar and juniper logs. Uh, blah, blah, blah. You are to grant my wish by providing food for my royal household. In the same way, so in this way, Hiram kept Solomon supplied with all the cedar and juniper logs he wanted, and Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat, that's a measurement of a big bushel of wheat, as food for his household, in addition to 20,000 baths of pressed olive oil. So Solomon continued to do this for Hiram year after year, and the Lord gave Solomon wisdom just as he had promised him, and there were peaceful relations between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a a treaty. This is really interesting. Entire cedars grow. So So it's a good place to grow cedar. In Israel, it's a great place to grow olives and grain, okay? So it's okay to take what we've got here, olives and grain, and to trade them with you who have things that we want and need. There is an ethical way to do this. Solomon, so, so there's, some, there's principles to be drawn from here. <laughs> so, Solomon's beha- so we see that Solomon's behavior caused those far from him the Lord. But the third thing that we notice is that Solomon paid for the goods and services that he received. Now, this is my own private bugaboo. I'm just gonna I'm gonna scratch this out in a little bit, but I, I want to step here for a, a simple for, for one simple reason. If you are a follower of Jesus, you need to pay for the goods and services that you receive. And I say this not just as a Christian comedian, who uh, as a Christian who is a comedian, who is often asked to do shows for people, and they were like, "Would you drive 18 hours to perform for two hours at our show of 50 people, and we'll give you a $10 Starbucks gift card?" Like. Uh, that like I get that occasionally, and and sometimes I do that just because it's fun, but sometimes it's just like no, I don't want to do that. So you know, like, but there's there's this expectation that because I'm a Christian, I'm not going to get paid for the time that I spend away from my family doing work for somebody else. And then there's other times, as the son of a mechanic who is a Christian, where I heard many stories of, and I'm not hope I'm not speaking at a school, Dad, but there were many people over the years. And I heard this from my mom, who would say, who was often, who, who would say, like, "Oh, you're a Christian, therefore I'm not going to pay you for the repairs I made to my car." Now that seemed to be what was happening. So, for followers of Jesus, at our most basic, pay your bills, you know. And I understand things are complicated and blah 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 blah. I get all that, but at its most basic. Don't expect that just because someone's a Christian, there's this weird expectation that sometimes happens that just because you're a Christian, you're going to give me something for free. That's not the world in which we live. Solomon engages with people and pays for the goods and services that he receives. But scratching that, throw that, it's my own personal bugaboo. This is more important. Solomon engaged in a long-term, mutually productive relationship with those who believed differently than him. This is incredibly important. Because if we're going to be people who make a difference in the lives of those who do not know Jesus long term, that takes time. And we need to invest ourselves in long-term relationships with people who don't know Jesus. It's okay to say that I've known this person for 10, 15, 20, 30 years and they haven't turned to the Lord yet. Is this a worthwhile use of my time? Yeah, it's, who knows? 
It's okay to engage in long-term productive relationships with people who do not yet know the Lord. So redemptive relationships take time and effort and commitment, and Solomon was willing to commit to this relationship for the long term because he trusted that the Lord was working in it. So if all he ever got out of this was a fair deal on lumber, so be it. That's in God's hands. But in, in ethically trading olive oil and wheat for lumber, every single year there is a relationship built up where all of a sudden you start to know someone, you start to ask how they behave over the course of many years of exchanging lumber for olive oil and grain, you start to have questions about family and relationships and all of these things that come up. And, and over the course of 20 years, I know that this happens where, where, where someone that you just had a business relationship, all of a sudden, sudden something flips in their head and you get a phone call one day that says like, I don't know how to operate in the world anymore. My kid is sick or I'm sick, or my life is falling apart, can you help me? Because you seem to have something that I don't. And if all we're ever in is the Shepherd's Guide and the Christian Rack Hockey League and all of these things through which we use to escape the world, then we never get that phone call when things go wrong because we haven't built the long-term, productive, mutually beneficial relationships that are required to place us in a position of trust so that when God works things out in his timing to draw all people to himself, that, that they have no one to call. We have no one to be on side with. It's an incredibly important thing for us to do. Solomon engaged in a long-term, mutually productive relationship with those who believed differently than him. And this is really important because it's enforced in Scripture. There's certain passages of Scripture that, for some reason, we've just deliberately chosen not to pay attention to. But this is, this is Paul in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 writing to the church at Corinth, which was a mess. And, and in the midst of this, there's some horrible sin happening by someone who claims to be part of the body of Christ. And they're claiming that the sin in which they are engaged is not actually a sin. And he had wrote them in a previous letter to it, not to associate with sexually immoral people. But, he's like, but watch how he says this. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are sexually immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. Right? Look, you're, if we live in the world where you're planted, you're going to have to believe with people who do things that you disagree with, who believe things that you disagree with. Paul did not suggest in any way, shape, or form you would, you would leave that world. Why? Because Christianity is not a religion of withdrawal. Christianity is not a religion of escape. We're not called to do that. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slandered, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat, eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? We make a commitment to one another as followers of Jesus, and this is going to be become clearer as we, as we change our membership process, as we work, to, hopefully, as we're working towards, and you guys got to vote on this, changing our membership process in the spring. But we've agreed that we're going to be up in each other's lives. 
We've agreed that it's going to be our business how we conduct, uh, how we conduct our lives together, okay? And we're going to have uh, the ability and willingness and desire to say, I want you to sharpen me because I get it twisted. And I'm going to be there to help sharpen you when you get lost and you get things wrong and you get, tw get it twisted. We're going to agree to do that for each other. But at the same time, what business is it of ours to judge those outside the church? If someone doesn't know Jesus yet, why would we expect them to live like they are following Jesus? It's an unfair expectation. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, but expel the wicked person from among you. There's a different set of standards for those who claim to know the Lord and those who don't. And when we actually, and, and, and can I, I'm going to be really honest with you, this is one of the most liberating and freeing passages of Scripture for me. Because this means that if I meet someone who engages in behavior that I think is, is questionable or destructive, if I meet someone who has a belief system that is contrary to mine, I don't have to not be friends with them. And I don't have to carry the burden of expecting that I have to change their minds every time I have a conversation with them. That is God's business, not mine. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. God judges those outside the church. It's not my job to examine every relationship that I come into contact with. I don't have to carry that burden. I saw this this week. I was invited to be part of a panel talking about a play uh, that's happening at... Uh, at uh, the Northern Lights Theater Company called uh, Testament of Mary. They do small uh, experimental theater. And this was a really great play. Um, but I was asked to be a part of a panel on it just talking about the nature of Mary and, uh, and, the, and, and Mary's relationship within the church. So I was part of that with uh, two uh, gender studies scholars from the University of Alberta. So they were both very much smarter than me and I felt out of place. But there was someone in the crowd who was very obvious to me, an evangelical person, because they used buzzwords that we use in evangelical world, where th somehow, and this was not part of the play at all, but their question was, what about people who are living out alternative, dis uh, alternative sexualities, and what is their eternal destiny? And I'm like, and, and I could see, and it was a frustrating place to be, because one, it's just like, that is a longer question that I have to answer in 30 seconds. And there's so much groundwork that has to be laid. And we are speaking in a code as two people who follow Jesus that the rest of this room doesn't necessarily understand. But what frustrated me most and what made me so sad was I saw in her face the burden of carrying the weight of needing to have everyone else's sexuality straight before she could operate in the world. And I'm a relatively conservative person when it comes to human sexuality, but I don't have to carry that burden for anybody else. My job is to keep my stuff straight and to love people wherever they're at. So I don't have to carry that burden for anybody else. I don't have to carry the, the burden of the eternal destiny of other people. My job 
is to follow God as best I can, share the good news of Jesus, and live knowing Jesus amongst people, doing, living such a good life among those who do not know him that though they, though they accuse us of doing wrong, they, uh, that they see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. My job is to not judge those who live outside the church, but to judge those inside the church and to live alongside people. And when God draws people to himself to make room for them at his table to say, here, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Take part in the grace that God has given us. It removes the burden of having to carry that for everybody because God has told us, I'm going to carry that. I think I've been thinking about this this week. There are dangerous places to be as, as followers of Jesus. And in my mind, the most dangerous follower of Jesus is the person who has no problem at all acknowledging and, and dealing with the fact that God loves them completely exactly as they are. And that's true. But if you believe that God loves you wholeheartedly, exactly as you are, you also have to believe that God loves the world wholeheartedly and exactly as it is. And the most dangerous Christian in the world is the person who has an easy time believing that God loves them and a hard time believing that God loves the world. That is a dangerous place to be. And I am concerned about not just us, but contemporary evangelicalism that we have gotten ourselves into a position where we believe that God loves us, but we have a hard time believing that God loves the world. We are called into this world of mundane details. We aren't just called into a world of, of sing songs and mountaintop experiences with the Holy Spirit. We're called in the, into a world of the mundane details of negotiating lumber exchanges and buying olive oil and getting your car fixed, and all of the 100 million things that we have to do in the course of a day. And those interactions matter. And it's in those mundane details that we are called to be as ethical as we are called to do, and to trust that God loves the person with whom we are dealing more than we ever could. And God loves the person with whom we are dealing even as much as he loves us. And God loves the person with whom we are dealing and has a, has a plan for their eternal destiny every bit as much as he has a plan for our eternal destiny as well. And it's what we're called to do as we engage with the world. And if we actually do it, it'll change the way that we interact with people. So this is the challenge for us this week. Are we going to live a religion that is about engagement, or are we going to live a religion that's about withdrawal? Are we going to live a religion that is about judging those outside, or are we going to live, live a religion uh, where we trust that God is going to judge those outside? We're going to live a religion where, where we feel the burden of every single person's eternal destiny, or are we going to trust that God has that under control and cares about that even more, more than we ever could? Because that is the, the, the challenge that we've been brought. And as we engage, I want us to pay attention to the details of our mundane details of our lives, but not be bogged down by them. 
And that is the, the freedom that we've been offered in Christ. So let's pray together. God. You are good. And you are involved in all of the mundane details of our lives. And we ask that you would help us to engage with all of the mundane details in our li- of our lives in this world in which you have planted us. That we would not try and escape it for a better one that we create in our minds or in our own little subcultures or bubbles, but that we would truly care about this world, that we would truly steward this world in which you have planted us. That we would have the desire to live such good lives amongst those who do not know you that they see our good deeds and they glorify you, that we would understand that every person we encounter, regardless of their behavior, regardless of their actions, regardless of their beliefs, regardless of their, their background, is deeply and purely and completely loved by you exactly as they are now. Not what they might be after they have changed, but exactly as they are now They are loved every bit as much as we are. For those of us who have a difficult time understanding that you could love us now exactly as we are, we ask that you would ingrain that in us as well. But God, we ask that you would give us wisdom like you gave Solomon, who understood and committed to relationships with people who did not know you, who were far from you, understanding that all things work together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.